0: This is Nick Dawson, the Editor-in-Chief of Talk House Film, and you're listening to the Talk House Film Podcast. At Talk House Film, we do a lot of blue sky thinking, especially when it comes to the podcast. We dream up a conversation that we think would be really great, then hustle as hard as we can to make it happen. In the case of this week's episode, it actually couldn't have been much simpler. Louis Theroux was coming to town to promote his typically offbeat new documentary, My Scientology Movie, And here in New York City was the perfect person to talk with him, Morgan Spurlock. When we asked Spurlock if he wanted to chat with Louie, he instantly said yes. Theroux is not a widely known name in the US like Spurlock is. That's only because, though his father, novelist Paul Theroux, is American and he has made most of his films in the States, he's a Brit and has worked primarily for the BBC. As he discusses in his conversation with Spurlock, Theroux actually got his big break on this side of the pond, working for Michael Moore on his pioneering network show, TV Nation. And Moore's work is very clearly an influence on both Theroux and Spurlock, two documentary filmmakers who thrust themselves into the action in immersive pieces that are marked by their personality and humor. If you've never seen Theroux's Weird Weekend series, in which he, or rather, an exaggeratedly wide-eyed, unworldly version of himself, spends time with the KKK, black nationalists, and porn stars. It's an excellent introduction to his work. And if you're a fan of Super Size Me, or particularly Spurlock's TV shows 30 Days and Inside Man, you should definitely get up to speed on Theroux's back catalogue, STAT. Though Theroux and Spurlock had never met, they were big fans of one another and would have talked for hours if they could. In the time they had, though, they still dived in really deep in a thoroughly entertaining conversation that in addition to my Scientology movie, touches on the joys and pitfalls of immersive journalism, Theroux's time with the infamous British TV presenter Jimmy Savile, getting up close and personal with bigots, pedophiles, Ted Nugent, and other unsavory characters, whether or not Louis hates Alex Gibney, who of course made his own Scientology doc, Janet Jackson and Nipplegate, and much more.
1: Well, I'm, I'm excited to be here because I have been a fan of this brilliant man for a very long time. Well, thank you. And uh, I can honestly say he is uh, an inspiration to me. He's somebody who I have consumed so much of the amazing things that you've made. Well, thank you very much. So it is uh, it is an honor. And, and we should say to everybody on the podcast, this is actually the first time you and I have ever actually met. Correct.
2: Yeah. Correct. So there, could, life. So, so there could be a fight by the end Well you never know <laughs> Hope not uh, uh, And I'm a fan of yours too Morgan It's a, it's a real pleasure to meet you And um, and I thought a lot about your movie uh, Supersize Me While I was making my Scientology movie Yeah. And uh, I think you laid the groundwork In some ways for the approach um, That we took But uh, I don't want to kind of get too specific Too quickly But yes it's great to meet you And also your immersive work that you've done on CNN I feel like I should ask you questions. I feel like I should ask you questions. We'll <laughs> why why go... don't we just have each ask each other questions? Yeah, let's do so that. Le-
1: well, let's start from the, I'll start from the beginning and just ask kind of where did it start um, for you? Because I, I know where you kind of began doing a lot of like the field pieces you did, but a lot of people may not. So where did where did kind of the immersive journalism and these types of stories start for you?
2: I started uh, when I was 23 when I got a, uh, my break with Michael Moore. and uh, And he hired me on his TV show, TV Nation. At that time, I had no experience in TV, and I didn't aspire to be on TV. Yeah. I was not in any sense a kind of natural TV performer. I was a print <laughs> journalist. I was working at Spy Magazine. And he um, I think he saw that the very qualities that made me unfit to be on TV were kind of an <laughs> asset. <laughs> you know? And I think he saw that I was gang- I'm a big
1: fan of unfit for television. Yeah. That's good.
2: <laughs> I, I mean, at the time, I don't think I realized. I thought maybe I was- uh suave and kind of focused and uh but I wasn't and he saw that and he and he I think by taking me and putting me with no experience of making tv out yeah. but kind of turbocharging me with a very professional team you yes. know of uh, camera people and producers and also writers um He could take me and put me in situations where I'd be out of my depth in an intriguing and humorous way. So I made about ten or fifteen segments for TV Nation about things like the Ku Klux Klan. The one that probably didn't
1: you try try to get the Ku Klux Klan to like uh, become a civil rights group for white people? Wasn't that the
2: well? I didn't try and do that. That's how they were uh, positioning themselves at the time. Right. So that was the premise for the show. Where and I was sort of. You know, a word I get pegged with a lot is faux naïve, which yeah. I tend to resist. But I was, I guess, in those days, definitely slightly being more wide-eyed yes. than I naturally am. And so the idea was, well, maybe we should give these guys another chance. You know, yes. Let's take a second look at the Ku Klux Klan. Maybe it's a kinder, gentler Klan. Yeah, so you don't hate black people at all. You just really like white people. And that was where they were coming from. <laughs> and... Uh, it, and the one that holds up best from that era probably is a profile I did of um, Ted Nugent. Yes, because he was so uh, volatile, and it was sometimes the the people I was among were- had he become had he become kind of like as as
1: kind of the big staunch right-wing mouthpiece that he is now, even back then? Yes, he had. He was. He had. He'd mutated. I I don't remember that piece.
2: He was a, um, this was 95 and he had come out, it was after the Oklahoma City bombing and there And he was
1: still touring like crazy. Like he was still- He was still
2: gigging. He still had long hair. He played the guitar. Yeah. um, But, and he was, his main thing was bow hunting and he would, and he he was advocating the spirit of the wild and going out in his loin. He did, he did loin, he he wore a loincloth on stage and anyway- it was after the Oklahoma City bombing, and he'd sort of come out as a militia supporter. Like, mm-hmm. he, he, he was he was sort of to the right of, even the right of the Republican Party, in a sense. Right. He, he believed, he was kind of borderline conspiracy, crazy right wing. That we need to arm ourselves, we need to get ready. Yeah, and there's a conspiracy. The, the memorable quote was him saying that, um, that Janet Reno was worse than Hitler. And... Um, but then I, I thought, I said, are you serious? You think Jennifer Reno is worse than Hitler? Definitely taller than, not Hitler. even as bad as. Yeah, <laughs> taller, more manly than Hitler. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's a little unfair. But, um, but he said she was worse than Hitler. Yes, you know. Um, uh, so that one, that, because he gave me such a hard time, that was quite that. that I think that was sort of the template. There was like me being out of my depth, and I think uh, w- when 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 events spiraled out of control, as they sometimes did, there was a moment when he just, he kind of went nuts on me. He said, I said something like, well, it seems to me the militia guys you're saying that you support are kind of the guys behind the Oklahoma City bombing, which actually is arguable. I don't know if that's fair, actually. But he said, you lying sack of shit, that's not even close. And he looked like he was going to absolutely kind of blow a gasket. Yeah. Anyway, so that was sort of where it all started. That was your entree. That was that the was beginning. That was my entree. Yeah, and for people
1: who haven't, I mean, because I love TV Nation. TV yeah. Nation was one of those shows that was so ahead of its time. It was post-Roger and Me, and yeah. Michael Moore did this TV series that was brilliant. And it, it was, was brilliant.
2: It was pre-Daily Show.
1: Pre-Daily Show, because that's that's the other thing that I think that the show did, is it really, I think, set the stage for all of the field pieces that the Daily Show did yeah. so, does so well and still does so well like TV Nation was doing
2: 10 years before.
1: Yes. And it was remarkable. That was,
2: but that was just one of its flavors, if you like.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and, and, like, and, I remember one of my favorite things was when Michael Moore took all of the Christmas carolers to the tobacco companies yeah. to sing and they were all guys that had had their voice boxes removed right. and so they all had the things where they sang like this. That's and so they're right. Christmas caroling for like R.J. Reynolds with the things on their throats. That's right. This show is so phenomenal, so I can't recommend it enough. I Nobody's wonder how it. you
2: see it now. It's probably a lot of it's on I YouTube. Like, I feel like
1: it's on... I feel like most of the shows probably are on YouTube, yeah. but, I, but it's probably on Netflix or somewhere. But I know it's out there and, and it's and, so good. How much of an influence was Michael on you? And especially since you got to work with him on that show... Because uh, I do think there is a very Michael Morris quality yeah. to what you do and to what I do. Um, yes. He's a big influence on me, but yeah, talk about that. I
2: I would say he was massive because um, he uh, he he taught me at that time. I had no experience, so all his habits of working, uh, I I picked up really. I mean, that was the only way I knew of doing things. So and he's a workaholic. He's a workaholic. Yeah, he's an obsessive about his work, and he um, the things like. Um, Using handheld cameras, I mean later on, I learned that like like many normal TV shows you would arrive, say hello off camera, yes. then light the, the you know the house that you're in, and then say, "You ready, and we 're going to mic you up now and when you well Michael 's thing was like you arrive. With the camera shooting, everything's captured on film. The hello is very important. Or you know, he always wanted that shot of you on of the camera on your shoulder as you walk up to the house and the door is answered for the first time. I remember one time one of the producers got the shot in reverse, right? So the door is opened from inside the house as the correspondent arrives, and I, Michael got you know un, really annoyed. He's like, "Why is the camera in the house?" He's like, "I never want to see that shot again." In you, you know, it, never let this happen again. Yeah. And um, because you already get a sense, it's set up. Yeah. The camera's in the house, it's set up. You can feel that it's it's untruthful. Yes. Uh, And then the whole thing of just kind of wearing contributors down. Yeah. Because often we're talking to people who uh, we we're we're trying to show the truth of them. Maybe they've got something to hide, as I say, clans people or people in re, you know re, involved in religious cults. And it's about sort of putting the time in and getting to the point where the truth starts to emerge or unexpected moments of comedy yes. emerge. So you most of the comedy he would actually have writers uh, 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 who would write funny things for him to say, and and he would get a few of those off. Most of those didn't tend to be the funniest stuff though. The funny things emerged just from random bit, be- you know, like a dog running in and, right. and biting you or you know what I mean or someone tripping over a, a chair like the funny stuff was very organic yeah and then you you boil you, you would shoot hours and hours and hours and then boil it down and 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 that sort of that became a, a way of working I mean I think, I think the big difference was I was l- less politically engaged mm-hmm. and um younger and maybe a little bit um you know more callow like I was I didn't have a family I didn't think deeply about the way the world is and why it got that way. I just enjoyed meeting people on the margins who were involved in stuff that was very outside. Or very fringy. Psychologically seemingly self-sabotaging. So so he that came more from me, I suppose. And he gave me space to do... Um, Sort of more quirky and more—I um, I don't know how to characterize it—but stories that were less politically pointed, I yeah. suppose. Were you on that show for the whole run? I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it had two runs, but then actually two seasons. It, it did, right? It did. NBC uh, six episodes, and then it did. Fox, I think six or seven episodes. It was also on the BBC, which is why I was hired, by the way. I was hired because uh, the they BBC- said, They said, we need we need somebody to bridge that gap. We kind of want an English. I mean, we are giving yeah. you a third of your money. It'd be nice if you had an English kind of accent on there somewhere, <laughs> which Michael obviously took against because he, yeah. A, ha- hates to be told what to do. Plus, he's not a massive Anglophile. Yeah. He's actually a big Americanophile. You know, he's not hugely... Um, warm to other countries he, he likes he's he likes michigan yeah and then and then a little after that comes the rest of the united states <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah and he yeah, likes true he's it's got true. he's still got very kind of um grassroots blue collar tastes in yeah. tv and food um so yeah he was but i think when he knew when he saw me he's like well this guy's english but at least his dad's American, meaning me. And I'd worked before that on an alternative paper in San Jose called the San Jose Metro, which was a cousin to the paper Michael founded, the Flint Voice, right. which is how Michael got his start yes. as a print journalist. And I think he liked that. I, I had certain credentials that made me kind of acceptable. And parallel. And you're almost yeah. in parallel to what yeah. he'd done. And yeah. you were a proper a journalist. A very junior version, obviously. But yeah. I, I had some journalistic
1: experience as yeah. well. So what was the greatest thing you learned during the course of that show? What What did that
2: teach you, that kind of teach you up for what was to come? I think he, it was almost a sense of ambition. And one of the things, you know, for the, for what the show would be and how seriously you would take what you would, you know, one of his things was uh, this sort of year zero approach to TV making. Yeah. And his watchword was, behave as though you're never going to get another job in television. Right. Right. It was this was sort a of revolutionary mindset and you know what that meant was yes get arrested yes uh, push the limit if you get physically assaulted so be it um, we are out there to change the world and and you you cannot be thinking that this is a way to kind of buff your resume or yeah. set you up for the next gig I mean that had a downside too in the sense that uh, I don't think everyone was ready for that level of commitment in spirit or that or that level of honesty I think because no. that's
1: that's the incredible thing about that show go back to this was like what 95 94 95. 94 95 and this was on network television like this yeah. was on NBC this was on Fox like you it's even it's impossible for me to imagine a network even having the balls to put a show like that on television yeah. today yeah I mean it's really I mean it speaks a lot to one kind of where where he was more TV was at the time and literally what's changed since then
2: yes yeah. exactly And and I think he expected a lot from his staff, and sometimes some staff members bridled at that. You know, the 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 feeling was more akin to I don't know, like a political action group or or a non profit that's trying to change the world, where it's not about your salary, it's not about can I, you know, do I have to work at weekends? Right. Whereas, I, I I mean, I think it's valid for people to have. Uh, an expectation that they can have normal nine to five hours. I mean, that's what unions are for, partly. And so there was a little bit of a tension there sometimes. Yeah, I, th- I can't, I can't, I
1: can't imagine the last. What was the last time I had a nine to five production job ever? I don't think. Yeah. I don't think. I tell you, I know exactly when it was. It was when I was in. It was right after I graduated from college, and I was a PA. Woody Allen. I was. I was a PA on Woody Allen's film *Bullets Over Broadway*. Woody Allen shoots nine to five. What you show up like you shoot your day. Woody Allen does the pages he wants to do, and then you're out by before sunset, and he goes home, and that's, yeah, that's your day. But like that's the only nine to five job in the whole entertainment business. Everything else, like with what you and I do, it's as long as it takes, yeah. whatever days you have to shoot, right. wherever you have to go. Like the amount of time I spend away from home, which I'm sure is the same with you, is it's a lot. Like, yes, I'm, it is. I'm gone a lot, but it's the choice we make to tell the stories we want to tell.
2: Do you have a sense of obviously Michael was an inspiration on you completely, yeah. And and did you, have you worked with Michael and and what was your exposure to his
1: work? I mean, I saw Roger and Me. This would have been I was in college when Roger and Me came out, and that was kind of the my first entree to most of us to to Michael Moore, mm. who was just like this regular guy who went out to to you know fight the big fight and chase this you know to to chase this mm. this. Unseeable, the unseeable mm. monster that mm. was you know that he had felt like he had to you know cha- be a champion of the people for, and it was it was an amazing thing to see because it made you finally feel like a little guy could do something, mm. you know. Finally, made you feel like the little guy, maybe not win, but at least the little guy could put up a fight. And I think that he became a champion of working class people on the heels of that film in a, in a way that hadn't happened in a long time for somebody to have kind of that voice and that platform and that impact. And I think he showed he showed me. Kind of what how what that was possible. I mean, and it was still another after that film it was another 14, 13 years before I made Super Size Me. But it was definitely one of those films that we kept coming back to. That film Bowling for Columbine um, that were all just really big influences. Mm. Yeah, and then of course by the time we made that movie, um,
2: yourself included. Oh well, thank you very much. Yeah, because I was I was a TV beard, I love
1: TV Nation. I was a big uh, Weird Weekends fan. Really? Yeah, you've the, seen the, that on Bravo. I saw that, I saw whenever, was it was a Bravo the show yeah. in the States or was yeah. it PBS, it was Bravo, Bravo. that picked it up. Um, and the porn episode, still one of the greatest things anyone can ever watch in their oh, life. Oh, wow, thank you. Um, dark side to that because uh, I remember I went back, I feel like it was a couple years ago to kind of just find out, I watched it again for some reason. We were talking about doing something, I guess, in the porn world um, at my company and I said we should watch this show hmm. and we just started watching it and and so a lot of like John Doe, the guy who's in that show, has now passed away. That's right. Yeah. Um, which I and then I started looking into just all the other people in the in the porn business, and that seems to happen a lot. I made a follow
2: up called uh, Twilight of the Porn Stars. Yeah, it's a Nietzsche reference. I don't know that many people got that. Both of them got it. Yeah. Yeah. Both people, <laughs> me and my mum. Because he wrote a book called Twilight of the Idols, but that's a reference to the Götterdammerung, which is Norse mythology, right? Yes. At the end of time, all the gods die. Well, I thought that was very apt because you know we, we lived in an age when porn was sort of secret... Um, you know, a kind of secret pastime, or pastime is kind of not the right word, but either way, people consumed it and paid for it. There was an industry there were sort of celebrity porn performers and the men weren't exactly celebrities. The men were always second fiddle, Yeah, no pun intended, <laughs> to the women. But um, well, the women get paid so much more money. The women get paid so much more money. Yeah. But the, what I found was I, I when I looked back at the world of the porn performers, in the same way as it had been a kind of bellwether or a um, a predictor of what would happen in all f- forms of media, yeah, because it, well, punk-
1: it was a big because when you made that, it was when like videotapes were still the big thing, yes, and and it was still big, big money, yeah,
2: yeah. DVDs were on the verge of coming in, but they were still niche, yes. But you know, porn led the way in um, VHS in many ways, res- and then in DVDs, right, and then in in downloads, and then in obsolescence, if you like. In In the same ways like the New York Times or these papers or magazines, print, books, uh, b- music became uh, increasingly threatened. Well, porn, no one wants to uh, go in into a porn store. So they're like, you know what I, I've- Or, like, I, or I, physically own one now. Yeah. Or physically own a porn. Like to physically own like yeah. a porn of
1: DVD or tape in your house. You're yeah. like, why would I ever do that?
2: Why would you have that? Why would you go into a shop and say, has, has Big Butt 17 come in yet? <laughs> Where, if you could just click a button and get it- for free, oh, the, there's the you line. know pirating. Like one I am, don't want to pirate big butt seventeen. That would be unfair to but, the makers. But I love they the, deserve my money. Like one, no one's going to have that moral. <laughs> one qualm. of my
1: favorite conversations you have in it, where you talk about the things that that are magic and scenes that come out. There's a conversation you have with a guy who runs one of those stores, who he says, "Oh," and it's like. Anal Intruder seven. It's yeah. the greatest. Yeah. It's the best. Rob Black said that. Where were you where basically said he's like, is it really that much better than six? Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, anal intruder six was was, was, was awful. <laughs> yeah. Rob Black, who in, who also appeared in the follow-up, he yeah. got he was imprisoned as part of the crackdown. Wow. Um the the anti uh pornography crusade, of which uh, Janet Jackson's nipple was also part. It seems a more innocent time now. Like the Nipplegate
1: launched? Yeah, that was
2: part of the same way. We've got to stop the coarsening of American public discourse. Yes, And it starts with uh, getting rid of these rape fantasy films that people are watching, and Janet Jackson's nipple on the Super Bowl, that has to be stamped out. Um, So that was all part of the climate. It seems like a more innocent time now, though, doesn't it? Well, imagine if that was all all we were worrying about now is Jenna Jackson. That would be that would be magical. If that, that would that was be a all wonderful.
1: That would be like a wonderland. <laughs> if we could just get back to like terrible lyrics and rap songs and, yeah. and nipplegate, that those would be the days. It was a beautiful
2: time. Yeah. So I did I did do a follow up, and as you say, uh, John Doe had it, it became it was partly a quest to see what had happened to John Doe. Well, why he'd killed well, John Doe and, and whoever? What was the young kid's name? JJ. What happened to that kid? Well, he left. The, he he kind of did four or five years of journeyman work. Right. In the industry, and then and then left and went back to being a, te- a tech guy at a big yeah. company in St. Louis, Missouri. Okay,
1: and then the story that the story that I also found fascinating was the guy who would he was straight but gay he would pay. do he was straight but would do gay porn yeah, yeah. gay for pay yeah he's yeah.
2: he's still he's still in there I think he's, he's still
1: in the business that guy
2: yeah he's still I think he's quite highly
1: regarded. Uh, this is something I get asked all the time and i'm curious cuz people always ask me they say well, do you keep up with all these people do you call them yes, like do you, I get that do you stay in t- do you stay in touch with
2: well with jj funnily enough i do he yeah. he's one of the few because i don't know about you but i that's i've made too many documentaries over the years to keep up with everyone yeah, and every as much year. as i'm would like to, and I'm curious, uh, I'm curious what happens to people. Yes, I have a fascination with kind of longevity and, and, and the arc of people's lives and, and, and many of the favorite things I've done have sort of involved the twilight years, if mm-hmm. you like, and how, a kind of where are they now type of thing. So I'm always checking up on where people are, but I don't actively stay in, in contact with people. The other one was the Westboro Baptist Church who I, st- I made two documentaries about and and stayed with for a few weeks yeah. I didn't live with but I visited them I I I was I visited with them You as did well. them as well
1: Yes that's quite a visit What was that for
2: what was that for C- CNN did,
1: It was for CNN yeah so we did a religious episode um, and then uh, and then we, we also visited with them once when we were doing a Gay Straight episode for FX for 30 Days for the show we did for them.
2: And were they receptive to you? Well, I
1: think they're receptive to anybody who wants to talk to them. Yes. I think, uh, and so long as you give them a platform and a microphone, they will let you in. They may not like you or agree with you. Who did you talk to there? Well, we talked to Fred because he was did still you? alive at the time. And so we spoke to him. Um, and then we spoke to his daughter, who I guess was kind of like... Shirley? Who's the heir apparent. Yes, who's now been edged
2: aside. And there was a guy called Steve Drain who featured in both of my uh, projects, and he was the one who'd gone... There to make a documentary called Hate Mongers. Yeah. And then in the course of making the documentary, he became con- he w- he was converted and, and ended up joining. I love that story really? because yeah, that's that's um That's remarkable. It, it feels like um that's the sort of supreme case of it's the like, sort of the going native that sometimes happens to all of us a little yeah. bit when we're on location, right?
1: Well you're right, I am racist. I should stay here with
2: you guys. You, well you don't <laughs> this, necessarily at what, think at what point like, you suddenly I don't know realize that, I've had that exact thought. <laughs> but, but I definitely but, <laughs> have thought like God, these guys kind of seem okay like i know they're in they I, have the, they have all the answers well again not exactly all the answers but you a, a little like a rapport builds up and you're like these guys are they're not that bad you know yeah. and they and and maybe uh it's not exactly making sense but i do quite like them and you know what i mean yeah and and and, and then um and then you get back into the edit and it's sort of slightly evaporates. but this is i tell
1: you what this is very reminiscent of which was something that One of the other things I loved, I loved your LA Stories series that you you did. And... One of the most powerful and disturbing episodes you did was when you spent all the time with the people who were 290s, yes, child, two nineties. So they're child molesters. Yeah, are paroled
2: people. sex offenders. So,
1: so it's like a, so it's anybody who's on an Amber List, anybody yeah. who's, who has to be a registered sex offender,
2: and they live in certain areas of Los Angeles due to the the, the rules about yeah. uh, where they can live. Can't be near a park. Can't be near a school. And so once these people get out of prison, they they meet up with with a guy yeah. who basically helps them kind of find a place to live. Who is himself a sex Offender, yeah, and they have sort of flop houses, uh, for <laughs> sex offenders, like they, they, they're hostels, but they're very down, you know, very I mean, down it market, very, it very they're depressing. pretty grim. Yeah. And, and they're I mean, great, it's
1: better than prison, but it's in, pretty grim.
2: Yeah, entirely inhabited by sex offenders yeah. who can't get jobs because they've got felonies. And yeah, so-, so what do these guys do? Like,
1: when they get out of prison, nobody's going to hire you.
2: Not re- No, no one really hires you. And and they just hang about, and occasionally they get jobs in factories, right. and they try to move along to come up some other place to live, but many of them are in a sort of a, a, a inescapable
1: spiral. Yeah. No the thing I remember in but at the beginning so there's a, there's a show where there's people that you're like wow you feel sorry for this guy until you realize or you'll even like some of the people that are in there and you're like oh sure. this guy is a child molester.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah the main guy who ran the um, the hostel who I got to quite quite like he was called Craig and then on the literally on one of the last days of filming I, I talked to him say so what did you do? Yeah. And it turned out to be his crimes were actually worse than anyone else's there. Yeah. He'd molested uh three of his four sons oh. you know and extensively over a period of time and and it was just, just this bizarre feeling of you know who are you uh, you know who and what do i do with this feeling yeah. you know of feeling that i i i we had a a rapport kind of a mutual respect and now do i are you unclean to me like cuz that doesn't feel right either so yeah. It's this strange um, kind of shadow area of, of, of emotional um, sort of ambivalence. Yes. I think people who just,
1: people who I think, you know, using like the Westboro Baptist Church or these people that you start talking to and they're nice when they talk to you, but yes. they spew such hatred. I remember when we were making the film Where in the World's Osama Bin Laden, we were filming with... Um, a gentleman who was in a mosque in Saudi Arabia, who is an imam, who when he and I sat and talked, we had a very nice conversation. He was, you know, he's like, you have to come visit. You should bring your family. We had tea. It was very lovely and nice. But when he's up, you know, talking before, you know, the whole his whole group at, at this at this one mosque, he would just vitriol would come out about westernized countries, about mm-hmm. America, about you know Israel, you name it, and so. It's like someone someone who still spews that level of, I think, hatred is, it's hard to feel real love and compassion towards mm. them. I think uh, what I try to do is just feel an understanding of where they're coming from. I think mm. that's the most important thing and be compassionate towards that of, of trying to build that bridge of understanding. But at the same time, when you hate speech is still hate speech. Yes. And it does it does light a fuse in a way that I think is dangerous.
2: Do you maintain relationships with uh, contributors, people you've done programs and shows with?
1: I think some. There's people like there was a there's a guy in West Virginia, um, Dale Lusk, who I lived with when I did the coal mining episode Mm -hmm. of Thirty Days. Uh, He and his family. Who every time I go home to West Virginia, I at least call him, try to see him and his family. Um, He's somebody who I've remained very close to, and I think a lot of it is probably because he is. He's, you know, he's part of my, like, he's like family. We're from West Virginia. He's, we're of the same cloth in a lot of ways. Um, But it's hard, you know, just as you've said, when you meet so many people, talk to so many people, it's hard to stay in constant contact with them.
2: But also, I have trouble sometimes uh, blurring the lines between kind of- uh, Your job. Friend and, and subject. Yeah. And, and and maybe sometimes worry that I've been guilty of treating people in my life who I've met through my shows as specimens, right? Right. And and, and kind of... Um, and that bit me because I made a program about a British celebrity called Jimmy Savile. I was going to ask you about
1: that. Yeah, and after... after. Well, give, give the background first. So talk about who... Because a lot of people may not know. Yeah, so, so there was a British
2: to, celebrity called Jimmy Savile who was very, very well-known. Beloved. Known. beloved. beloved. Yeah. Like this guy was a hero. Actually, the word to beloved... It wasn't so because he was always viewed as slightly annoying by many people. You know, it was a bit off and off a little. You know, it, but still a cultural icon. He was an icon, and he yeah. was, it was he was he was a hero to many people. But there there, there was War, some sw- wore sweatpants around. He wore always wore a tracksuit, <laughs> yeah. and he smoked cigars, and he had catchphrases, and he did a children's TV show called Jim'll Fix It, where he made children's dreams come true. He'd become famous as a DJ, but he also had this sort of he always had this slightly enigmatic. Um, air about him no one was quite sure who he was sort of in his private life he'd never married never had girlfriends Um, he didn't seem in any way camp like people sometimes thought he might be gay but that that didn't seem to be necessarily the case it wasn't like Paul Lynn he wasn't like the center
1: square on Hollywood squares
2: you know back in the day no so so I made a show where I kind of tried to get to know him and I ended up and what happened during that show well he 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 kind of uh, obfuscated but in a very entertaining way and he he, he uh, used his catchphrases and he talked about his connections in high places. He threatened to sue me once or twice because he didn't like my questioning, but that was part of his style. He had a combative style which was to do with, um, you know, not taking any nonsense. He kept saying, he, he made various vague references to the fact that he was a gangster. He was in with gangsters. He said He kept referring to himself as, I'm Robert De Niro. That's how he spoke, sort of. And then uh, late one night, I recall, when I was in in bed, we stayed with him uh, a couple of times. My director stayed up and filmed Jimmy Savile when... I think Jimmy Savile may have forgotten that he was being filmed. The camera was very low. And at that point, Jimmy Savile talked about in the 60s, he uh, used to run nightclubs and would... If he didn't like... Someone, if he thought they were acting up in his nightclub, he would take them down to his boiler room and tie them up and leave them there. And the police tried to arrest him for it. So that was the only hint of something kind something of dem- dark, demonstrably illegal, yeah. right? Um, but at the end of it, I thought, wow, we did a really good job of revealing how um, strange this guy was. I, I never kind of solved the the riddle of his sexual identity. Yeah, I was pretty sure he wasn't gay. I didn't know quite what he was. Whether he was sort of um, almost like this this almost like just celibate this, uh, either celibate or just
1: uh, asexual
2: yeah asexual possibly
1: right a year
2: uh, uh how
1: probably, long yeah how long after that special did did, did did all the news break well
2: the first thing that happened was i stayed in well, touch he, with him. well he passed away first it, well before that though, yeah. so i stayed in ch- i thought i hadn't quite got to his secrets right okay. so a little part of me thought i need to stay in touch with this guy and and you know, maybe his mask will drop at some point. In addition, I was aware that he was sort of a, a public relations asset in some ways. I used to use him to do stuff on DVDs yeah. or do little skits that I'd use at a, at a TV festival, stuff like that. So two or three years went by and I visited him at his place several times and I began to sort of see him as something like a friend, right? While continuing to be aware that he was an odd guy. Yeah. Then about 10 years went by and he died. That was in 2011. Uh, He was celebrated. All the great and the good turned out for his funeral. Mm -hmm. And... um, uh, you know, prime ministers, royalty sent messages of support, generations of pop stars who'd been on his, uh, his shows and stuff. And then a year after that, or maybe nine months after his funeral, an ITV documentary came out revealing the fact that he was, in fact, a serial sex offender with a, a, a long list of uh, uh, sexual assaults on men, women, and children. and uh, Many of them in hospital. Many of them in hospital, both sort of physical hospital, physically handicapped, disabled people, and in mental hospital. And many of them also at the BBC, in the BBC studios. I mean, and many of them all over the place, basically because there were so many. Yeah. That um, not all of, as it were, equal gravity, but many very grave, very yeah. serious. I spoke to four or five uh, victims, and each one said, I, I wish I'd said something at the time. Yeah. Or I wish I'd said more at the time. But, and if I'd known that there were others, um, I would have. And I feel so regretful that I didn't, you know, speak out. Right. And, and it, which is awful to, to think of, you know, victims feeling responsibility for crimes that were committed against them, among yes. other people. Well, I mean, this is what's, that's what's happened with Bill
1: Cosby is now there's a strength in numbers of where people started coming forward because there were other people who were willing to speak out. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and and amazingly, I mean that's still trundling on. But I mean, wow, isn't it? Shocking how long all this stuff takes. Yeah. But um, but the the other thing that happened was that I felt as though I dropped the ball by not seeing this in him.
1: Well, and that was my that was my question. It's like so now this ITV documentary comes out. Yeah. This story comes out, and you're like, how did how did we not get into this? How did I
2: spend three weeks with him <laughs> yeah, right. and, and not, not see that and not get to that? But m- almost more than that. And, and what does it say about me that, you know... Who,
1: You're a terrible journalist. I stayed journalist.
2: in touch with him. <laughs> well, that, uh, clearly that, but I was okay with that part. The bit that bothered me was the idea that I'd stayed in touch with him and, and, and kind of footled around with him yeah. in, in the sense of visiting him, hanging out, um, several times going to his uh, place in Leeds. Yeah, so how did you feel? Well, I felt shitty. Yeah. Basically. And I felt as though um, I, I was confused about, on the one hand, uh, what the nature of the relationship was. Where, had I stayed in touch with him to get the goods on him, you know, as I sort of partly thought, or had I s- sort of surrendered uh, my critical objectivity at some point? And I didn't really have good answers to any of this. Yeah. I ended up making a follow-up documentary. Um, I don't even know if you can see it over here, to be honest with you, in the States, but... It, it, was, it was helpful for me. I think it was... Because um, the other thing that happened was this sort of rush to distance oneself from Jimmy Savile. Anyone who... The people who were queuing up to deliver eulogies at his yes. funeral vanished. And suddenly no one could be found... Who, to talk about it. Who, ...who had ever professed a friendship for Jimmy Savile. From being the most fated, most um, sort of admired for his charitable works man, or one of them in the country, yeah, he became... A person who'd never had any friends, who no one had ever liked, who everyone had always known how creepy he was, and um, the only mystery was uh, how he got away with it for all those years. So I thought I could almost perform a service by standing up and saying, "You know what? I knew him, and I I actually uh, quite liked him. Yeah. You know, and 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 what do I do with that now? Right, you know, which what? I think is on, It's honest. It feels brave, although. It, I don't. Know. Well, people said it was brave. I, I mean, in a, in a sense, it should be. It shouldn't. It should be unexceptionable. It should be, because how can we know all yeah. these things, right? But it, for whatever reason, I think because there was such a sense of betrayal and hysteria, there was there were very few people who who were willing to say that they'd known him, right? What do you when you look at
1: what you do? What do you enjoy out of what you do? Like, why immersive journalism? What does that do for you as a
2: person? I think it takes me outside myself in a way that I find freeing. Uh, I I have cares and anxieties. I'm a bit of a worry wart, you know. No. Yeah, believe it or not, are you? Do you get that at all? (laughs) Um, You You seem actually more. I, comfortable in yourself than I am. But I, I mean, I worry about
1: things. And I and I think that I worry when I get into these situations just because I think you always want to figure out a way to fit in. And that's part of what I'm- But immersive. I mean
2: worry in your normal life. In my normal life. Yeah. I
1: try not to worry in my normal life. I worry about, I have a baby. And so I worry about my 10 year old. I worry about my 10 month old. I worry about my wife. Um, I worry about all the people that I work with but but, but I try you, not to let that like take over my life
2: right yeah uh, I, I, I mean I'm not sure if that's the same kind of I tend not to worry about my kids <laughs> they're fine I think those those they're kids fine. Are fine they're fine <laughs> they're fine my wife's on the case no yeah. I'm a very hands-on dad but um, I just mean I just have, have a sense of like I worry about who I am yeah. you know and, and what I believe and, 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 and or social situations just in a kind of in a very basic sort of pervasive anxiety disorder, but well, especially of here way. in America,
1: you already sound twenty-five percent smarter than every American just when you start talking. So you should feel and fine. Maybe
2: people are hating me for that. <laughs> That's right. You know, well that leads to only a whole... in certain
1: parts of a country, right?
2: Yeah. <laughs> so when I'm when I'm in this other world, and people, you know, in, in the Brits, people are judging you for what class you are, and yeah. there's all sorts of booby traps socially speaking. When I'm on location in America, somehow I feel invisible i feel people aren't I, I, I relax around people who aren't curious about me yeah you know people who just they just want to give you the news about l ron hubbard and or um or black nationalism or black nationalism yeah. or how to get wood you know yeah big booty seven <laughs> um or gunning gunning still one of my gunning in favorites. the in the miami jail <laughs> yeah and and I feel like I'm a kind of um, invisible participant in a, in a, in a, in a hidden world yeah. where, where I'm somehow unaccountable and I can have intimacy without accountability. I think yes. that's it, the phrase in a nutshell.
1: That's fantastic. That's a great way to sum it up. Do you get that? I, I, I love the connection that I start to have with people, and I love the magical moments that come out of these scenarios. Like you said, the just when you are using Michael Moore, you said that he would have these jokes and things that he would want to say that would be funny, but the things that are infinitely the funniest are the things you can't plan like in your new movie one of the funniest things that happens in that film which is one of the greatest things ever caught on camera when you are outside of the Scientology gold base and they pull up in the car and they're filming you and you're filming them they're telling you to turn the camera off that moment is such gold it is Awesome. Oh, well, and, thank you. And those are the things you can't plan for. No. Like when those things happen in a documentary, you're like, it's, and in your mind, you're going. In the back of your mind, you're going, "This is definitely going in the film." Yeah. But, but while it's still happening, you're just
2: like, "This is. Yeah. I can't
1: believe this is really happening." That's so funny. Yeah,
2: I was worried we were because it takes place at night, and and I are um, we is it, are we still getting an exposure? Yeah, Can we I was even thinking, like, oh this? Christ, we've lost the light. <laughs> this is a disaster. Yeah. But um, well, thank you very much for that. It was a yeah. fun movie to make, and in I, some ways, it I was, love the film. Oh, the film you. is So great. It was a funny film to make because, I, you know, I'm, I'm used to getting access. Right. And so to do a film, and, and all those things I was just talking about to do with um, being immersed in a world and being invisible and feeling invited in is a big thing as well. None of those applied here. Yeah. Which is sort of what um, stopped me from making a documentary on Scientology for, you know, the 15 years that I thought about doing it. There's, I, Right after we made Super
1: Size Me, we talked about doing... Exactly what you've just done. Like, of course, it's like because everybody's like, "How do you do this?" And people are like, "Well, you should just you should become a Scientologist." Yeah. I was like, "But it's like I said, I I said you don't think like I'm going to show up and be like I suddenly want to join the church." They're going to yeah. be like, "We bet you do. Yeah. We bet you want to just join the church." Yeah, and I think that I did. Said, you ever send them? Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, no. I, I but it's one of those. I said, I said to do this, like I'd have to join, and it will take us ten years. I said because I to really get in, like I have to get in, I have to start paying the would money. you've
2: gone undercover. I think you would have had to have to yeah. have really
1: done it like the best way. You have had to have joined. I would have had to have like. Divorce myself from all my suppressive yeah. family members. I would have had to have like turned my quote unquote back on them while at the same time basically being a double agent, which would yeah. have been amazing yeah. if you could have actually gotten that far in 10 years. It's just, I probably, I, I feel like at some point I would have not only hated myself, yeah. but my life and I would have had to have lost everybody that I cared about yeah. just to have made a great movie. Sometimes it's worth just making a great movie, but I don't know. I feel like there's, Better ways to make a great movie. Also,
2: I don't think you don't have the air of a Scientologist. I mean, maybe you could have acquired it. Yeah, that's
1: because I haven't started auditing enough. See if I audit more and I would self-reflect more and I would get rid of all USPs then maybe.
2: Yes, good point. (laughs) Good point. You're quite right. Early on, we said... um, Nobody's going to let us in. (laughs) We we, we talked seriously about going undercover and then the feeling was it would either take 10 years to see anything interesting, plus... And a lot of money, 10 Most years th- and a lot of money. And, and the first six months to a year, which is really a more realistic filming schedule, mm-hmm. you're just going to see kind of ground level stuff is not very interesting and doesn't relate yeah. in any way to the the most serious and interesting allegations that have been made about Scientology's misdeeds. Which are, the more of those are happening at like uh, the, Gold Base and uh, the it's Gold with Sea yeah, Org. To get to Gold Base, you have to join the Sea Org. You know, you don't just arrive and say, I'm, I, want, I want to do some auditing. You have to sign a, literally sign a contract for a billion years. Uh, I didn't want there to be a sense of bad faith. Yeah. You know, the more I thought about it, you can, you can get away with that if you're seeing something absolutely amazing, right? Yes. But most of the time, it's better if you can form a kind of sincere relationship, a, above the table kind of relationship. Yeah. And um, so we evolved the idea of doing uh, reenactments. The other thing we knew would we could rely on was them coming after us. I should yes. also mention that. A lot of people think that's, uh, the most sort of revealing or surprising thing. Would it,
1: would it be called squirreling for you? It's, not or squirreling, it's only squirreling unless you're a member.
2: Yeah, no, it's only squirreling if you are taking Scientology techniques and and selling them or doing them in an unauthorized way. Ah. So arguably there was a tiny bit of squirreling that we did, um, but really what they were doing was confronting and shattering suppression right. when, when they turned up and began handling us. I mean, anyone who knows anything about Scientology knows that that's what they do. Yes. So I sort of thought that was um, something we could count on them doing. When did you make the film? When? What year was this? How long oh, ago was it? It was 2014 to 15. Okay. About a year, over a year, uh, but filming very sporadically.
1: And what was the, what was kind of the instigating factor? You're like, we have to tell this story. What made you want to dive in?
2: I think it almost the... Uh, there were two things.
1: And then did you hate Alex Gibney when his movie came out?
2: Well, first? his... Okay.
1: <laughs> I'm glad you asked me Because you, you, can,
2: you can openly slag you him I'm going to leave the suspense here. like... Yeah. I'm not even going to answer that now. Maybe I did hate him. Maybe I do hate him. Or maybe I don't. Yeah. We'll get to that. Alex Gibney, stand by. While you're thinking about that. I had been abs- sort of fascinated with Scientology going back to my late teens. Mm-hmm. In 2003, I made a formal approach. They actually took me around the celebrity center and said, Well... Let's see what we can do, and 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 you know what are you interested in, and maybe you, and you could, were filming this or you weren't. filming No, this was off camera. Just, this, this was just part of the touring. negotiation. Yeah, right. and and why don't you make a list of of, of what you'd like to see, and and, and then put it in a, a document and, and ping it over to us, and and then I'm thinking, well, we do immersive journalism, right? So yeah. then you're in this slightly weird situation of making your list, and it says. Spend three weeks at the Celebrity Center, interview Tom Cruise, interview David Miscavige, be audited, go to the, you know, COT8 materials, get a, get a brunch at the Celebrity Center, go to the Big Blue, go to spiritual headquarters in Clearwater. You know, this long litany of stuff that you want. And and, and then you Read pick, script for Battlefield Earth 2. Exactly. <laughs> massage John Travolta's back. Have him that was massage the only, my that was, back. That was the only two things they agreed to. Exactly. <laughs> And that doesn't, that doesn't make 60 minutes. <laughs> no, they didn't actually reply to that. I don't think when the list went across, I think that more or less killed the deal. And, and so 2003, it fizzled out. Then I sort of thought, you know what? This is never going to happen. I can't yeah. do it. Then Simon Chin, the producer of Sugar do Man. Who I know well. You know well. He, he, did, he, did,
1: he did Searching for Sugar Man, won, yes. a, won, won an Ma- Oscar. Oscar for that, and won an Oscar for Man on Wire. Man on Wire. Quite. Yeah, only DACA filmmaker to win two Best Picture Oscars. I didn't
2: know that. Yes. He came came to me. We were at school together, bizarrely. And he came to me and said, um, uh, you know, let's make a film together for theatrical release instead of the normal TV stuff you do. Do something with a real cinematic scope. And then a few weeks after that, I think the Lawrence Wright profile of Paul Haggis appeared in The New Yorker. And he said, hey, what about Scientology? And I said, well, they'll never let me in. That's not how I work. And then over the course of the next two years, we just sort of read in the subject, had... uh, occasional conversations and gradually uh this idea of doing reenactments happened and that was the point at which it felt like okay this maybe this This could work this can work yeah when when did you connect with marty marty
1: rathburn so tell us who marty rathburn is so so the main
2: character in the film is marty rathburn and for a long time well he was inside scientology for more than 20 years and for a number of those years he was extremely high up he was he calls it Mister Fixit, the right-hand man to David Miscavige, who's the leader of Scientology. And he was a very—he was, like, was like the hand of the king. He was—he was sort of like the vizier in in um, in what, what's it in like Aladdin. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He was like the the kind of the enforcer. He was the power behind the throne, really. In certain respects, he was the guy who got the job done. Yes, you know, the man at the top issues diktats and then and then. The next guy down has to go out and talk to the team and make sure all the stuff happens. Yes. And so he ran legal teams, he ran private investigators he was also considered the 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 well by he by his own lights he said he was de, he was the uh, the best auditor so he was on top of spiritual practice for a while he carried the title of inspector general so although there are a lot of defectors from scientology marty's unique in the sense that no one was at his level or speaks with so much authority about what happens at the highest levels yeah So he came on board. Him auditing
1: you is a great scene in the film as well because he has got you have a great poker face. I think he has a he has an even better poker face.
2: Although he's a and and because he's a slightly irascible guy, but then when he's in this soft softer mode of being an auditor, it's almost more frightening because it's like oh, go back to being angry because that part I get. I don't get you as count spiritual counselor. Yeah, but um. He came on. He he's been in docs before, but he's never been portrayed in a sort of three dimensional and rounded way. Yes. So the idea really was to kind of um, allow him to drive the reenactments, allow that to kind of. Um, so he
1: figured out. Like, he said, "Here's how we can pull these off. Here's what we should do. Here's what we should." He,
2: show. Said, he said, "I'll preside over the actors. Let me pick the Miscavige. Let me show you what the tech is. I know what." Which for me was very important that it would feel like it was his show, if you like, because yeah. then it's revealing about him. It's not some sort of bit of um, prankery on my part.
1: No, it, it, I feel, it, say- feels, it feels very real. I mean, that's the thing. There's the, the When you see those moments, you can ultimately, even though they are created, you do feel like you are transported in this moment to get an understanding of what really happens. I and think so I think so, they're yeah. very effective.
2: Thank you. And that, yeah. that, I also have to tip my hat to a film called The Act of Killing, which I'm sure you've seen. Oh, yeah. Joshua great. Oppenheimer's great film, film. Which, which you extensively uses... Uh, f- these free-flowing reenactments. Like this improv, like these improv acting yes, moments. Yes, which, which are performed and directed by these aging mass murderers yeah. who took part in these- um, Another one of those- Almost al- pogroms. Mass killings. Pogroms yeah. that w- took place against China, ethnic
1: Chinese. Another um, one of those films, like you watch that film and it's such a good idea of like, let's tell the story through these killers and have them do their own reenactments. Like mm-hmm. you watch that- and it was one of those where I
2: was like, that is such a brilliant idea. I, amazing. Why, why did we not think of that? Because we hadn't been living in Indonesia for 10 That's years, right. probably. Right. Yeah. But also, uh, and, and we're not as brilliant. Well, I'm not. He's, he's pretty brilliant. He's amazing. He's amazing. I mean, I think, which and in, in a way is the most extreme case you could think of of what, of what we were talking about earlier, which is building friendships and, and, and warmth, building warmth with people who've done the worst Terrible things. things imaginable. And yes. who n- not only that, they're not in prison. They are celebrated as the kind of the godfathers of the existing regime in Indonesia. Yes, And he got a lot of flack for doing that. Um, Joshua Oppen, I don't know about a lot, but some people didn't get, didn't feel like that was um, responsible journalism. I mean, I, t- I was completely on board I with thought, it. I
1: thought it was so well done. I disagree. I disagree with anybody who didn't like that film. I think it was a great way part of what our job and what you and I do and I think what he the, what the importance is of these movies is how do you deal with a really difficult subject in a way that actually gets people to watch. Yeah. And I think what he did is he it's actually amazing. got people to watch a a really heart-wrenching story um by this device. And I think this these devices while you may not agree with them but they do work in terms of creating a much more compelling I think environment for a story.
2: I totally agree and yeah. I'd even go further and say that um he actually jump-started a process of rehabilitation on the part of his main contributor, Anwar Congo. Yes. Uh, you get the sense that in, in, in the process of doing these reenactments, Anwar Congo starts to gain insight into how dreadful the things he did were. Yes. The, I will say one last
1: thing before we have to go, because we've come to kind of the end of our, of our time. Um, one, what an absolute pleasure it's been to sit well, down thank with you. Well, Morgan.
2: Likewise. The,
1: the film... My Scientology movie, which is out right now, yes. is so spectacular. Wow, and the, 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 if there's one thing that I ever learned from you, and I'm glad I can tell you this, is you watch this film. There is no better listening by Louis Thoreau in, in any project than this one. Wow. When you get Louis, because what the, the the amazing thing you do is you just hang there. And, when you, and you just wait for people. You ask somebody a question, yeah. they say something back to you, and you don't respond. You just keep staring at them. And it forces them to keep talking because yep. they feel so uncomfortable by the silence. And it is, it's great. And Thank some of the you. things that people say in this film, some of the things they react, what happens with you and Marty as the film goes on is spectacular. I don't want to tell people, but it is a, it's such a great. Thank you. Roller pushed, coaster ride. Roller coaster of the film. It's an amazing roller coaster ride of enthusiasm and excitement. Here we go. About a church from the stars. That's it. <laughs> you nailed it. Can we put that on
2: our poster? Yes, you can. Morgan That's Spurlock. Quote. <laughs> awesome seeing you, man. Thank you. You too. Thanks so much, Morgan. Cheers.
0: This is Nick Dawson from Talk Has Film. And you've been listening to Morgan Spurlock and Louis Theroux on the Talk House Film Podcast. This episode was engineered by Talk House Podcast producer Elliot Einhorn and mixed by Mark Yoshizumi. For more filmmakers talking film and TV, visit talkhouse.com film. Subscribe to Talk House Film and Talkhouse Music Podcasts on iTunes and Stitcher, where you can find all our previous episodes. And while you're there, please rate and review as it helps others to find the podcast.